Well, I'm glad, glad you guys are here, um, grateful to be with you, and uh, grateful for what the Lord has for us today. Who remembers where we were last week? Micah? <laughs> Close. Nahum. Yeah. Real book in the Bible. Nahum. That's, that's, a, that's an actual book. Um, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to continue our series in Nahum. We're going to be in chapter 1 again. Um, and if you don't know where Nahum is, uh, Micah is where you go. And then after Micah, you'll see Nahum. Um, if you've passed that, you'll be at Habakkuk, and you just go back to Nahum. Um, and uh, just to kind of give us just a brief context, right? Nahum was written, it's a prophecy, about the destruction of Assyria. Uh, specifically Nineveh, because that was their capital city, uh, their stronghold. But it's, it's a prophecy about the destruction of this great and massive city, which is an incredible thing at that time. Because uh, at, at this time, this is the world power. Like, they are in charge. And they are a brutal nation, a warring tribe. I mean, people are fearful of these, of these people, and rightfully so, because they're absolutely wicked, I mean, and despicable, and they have no care for human life except their own. And so they did things, they boasted about things in their, their annuals that I won't even speak of here because it's just so horrific. And these people, uh, this, this, this nation had amassed so much wealth that some of the historians, like Josephus, like from, you know, first century, could not even tell you how much money, these, how much stuff these people had. I mean, they, they were just powerful, seated, massive city, right? So Jonah goes and he prophesies against them. It takes him three and a half days to get to the center of the city. So there's this huge wall, eight mile circumference around the center of it. It's like the width of three chariots to go around. It's just this massive seat of power. And in this country, this nation was used by God to discipline northern Israel. And they had come in, they conquered northern Israel, they brought them into exile, they almost conquered Judah, but the Lord saved Judah through Hezekiah, and, and Assyria goes back, and the people of Israel, who are holding the promises of God, are in exile, under discipline, by this wicked nation. And Nahum is coming up, and he's prophesying, and speaking towards the rescue of God's people from under the hand of the Assyrians. Now, last week we were looking at this, and for some reason, Siri is up here listening to everything I say on my iPad. Um, <laughs> stop it. Um, and, uh, and we looked at the very beginning of this, this prophecy, which contains just a lot of destruction. There's a few notes of hope in it, but it's mostly destruction. And we saw that God is a God of, of vengeance, a, a just God, but not like we understand that. God is not someone who reacts to things. But in his nature, he is holy, he is righteous, he is just. 
And, and he waits for the right time to avenge injustice in the world. And we can trust him for that. It's a good thing. Right? God, has, as, he's, as he's shown himself, is a God who is rich in mercy and grace and forgiveness and steadfast love. He delights in it. But he is just. And if he was not just, he would not be good. And so God is going to ultimately make things right. Well, today we're going to continue our looking into this book. Uh, and we're going to see uh, a few things. Right? That God, although he may use wicked people to exercise his discipline on his people, he will not stand off forever. That there is peace found in him. There is safety found in him. And there's something for us to do as we await our time of exile here. So if you have your Bibles open with me, I'm going to read chapter 1 again, and then we're going to look at a few things. This is an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in a whirlwind and storm. The clouds are dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are broken to pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength in many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carven image and the metal image, and I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold, Upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. See, Nahum, like we mentioned last week, Nahum is carrying this burden of speaking this destruction towards this, this nation. And in it, there's, there's God's wrath, there's God's justice, and there is hope for God's people. So he begins this, this helping us 
to recall our minds to the reality of who God is. And quite often, I think that we forget who God is. Quite often, we forget how powerful God is. He's created all things. He holds all things together. There is nothing that can stand against him. So Nahum is speaking back and he's using poetry and he's speaking towards what God's done in the past. Dried up the, the sea, right? The Red Sea crossing. Dried up the rivers, the Jordan River crossing. He makes these places wither, Bashan and Carmel, which if you don't really know the geography of Israel, uh, you wouldn't really necessarily get this. But these are both up in the north, right? This is where is northern Israel lived. This is where they was taken away. And up in the north, in northern Israel, that is the most fertile ground in all of the nation of Israel. Uh, most archaeologists, people there, uh, historians call it the breadbasket of Israel. Because it's just lush, full of vegetation. And, and God just says, I can dry it up. I will clean it out. There's no one who can stand against me. And as Nahum's reminding us of his power, he speaks towards God's people and he reminds them of his love and care for them. Right, so Israel was brought into exile. Assyria was God's instrument of discipline on Israel. This nation that grew and ravaged the land was wicked, was moving forward. God utilized to do something in Israel to help them to understand who they actually are and who is actually God. See, for all of Israel's history, and I'm talking about when the kingdom split, they went after other gods. Right? They, are, they are worshiping idols. They are, they, are, they are so much syncretism with the nations around them. They're sacrificing to these gods and idols. They're, 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 there's child sacrifice going on. There's all sorts of wicked things going on. And, and God could not stand it anymore. So he disciplined them. And they went into exile. But Nahum says something in this this statement of God's power and his wrath and his, and his might that speaks to encourage his people who are in exile. Verse 7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Which should remind us of a few things. God's primary characteristic that he wants us to know is that he loves us. He loves his people. Even in his wrath, there is love. Even in his justice, there is love. And he knows those who are his. He knows those who are resting in him. He knows those who trust him. Not everyone does. Not everyone will. But he knows those who trust him and he keeps them. 
He's a safety for them. So that means although he uses the sin in this world to work out his good plan, to discipline his kids sometimes, he will not always leave them under discipline. He will ultimately rescue them. Right, so we read a, we read a, a passage in, in Romans that says, God works all things together for good of those who are called according to his purpose. And, and oftentimes we're looking at that as, as in, okay, well, all this stuff around me is going to work towards good. And sometimes, oftentimes we don't think of how God is sovereignly working in the world through the broken people and the broken nations and the sinful people to move history and the way in which he wants it to go to work out his purpose. He does it. He clearly does it in Assyria. There are prophecy after prophecy, right? Starting with like Micah, the book before, is all about Assyria coming in in exercising God's wrath on his people for, for discipline. Not for punishment, but for discipline, to help them know who he is. Isaiah, over and over and over again, speaks of how God's going to use the Assyrians, but it's not going to be forever. Eventually, he's going to destroy them. Actually, when he's, when he's saying that he's going to use the Assyrians, he's saying, woe to the Assyrians. For you are going to be my, my instrument of wrath towards my people, but woe to you because you will not stand long. So he's taking this desperate situation, these, these, this broken world that we're in, and he's utilizing it for his good purposes. And not only that, he's promising to hold the people that hold on to him. Sometimes God's people get lumped into the sum of all the wrong that's going on with people around them and suffer the same kind of consequences the people that's going around them. And God says, no, if you trust me, I will keep you. I will rescue you. In fact, if we were to turn back into the end of Micah, um, who someone says we were in, we're going to read the last three verses. Micah says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea and will sh you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Although you are going to take us and bring us into exile, you are going to show steadfast love to us. Then immediately Nahum comes up and says, here's the steadfast love. God is going to break apart your bonds. God is going to break your, destroy your captive, captors. God is going to rescue you. God is going to keep you. Trust in him. Rely on him. Put your hope in him. He will do what he's promised.
the Lord knows those who take refuge in him. That word there, it's a Hebrew word. We learn a little bit of Hebrew today. It's a word called yada. Yada means to know intimately. The Lord knows intimately those who take refuge in him. This word is the same word that's used in one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. What does it say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, what does it say? Acknowledge him. In all your ways, yada him. Know him. Know who he is. Know his character. Deeply understand him in your ways. And he will make your path straight. It's the relationship that God's people have with him. He, he knows his people. There's a relational component to knowing him. In fact, Jesus kind of speaks to the same thing in Matthew chapter 7 which many say are the most, the, the most terrifying words in all of Scripture. Uh, it says, many of you, not, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. God rescues those who are in relationship with him, and that relationship is found and built in faith. It's a deep trust. It's a knowing of God and God knowing me. And if God knows me, no matter how far I've strayed, no matter how much I've messed my life up, no matter how much discipline I'm under, I can know that ultimately I will be rescued out of it. And the reality is many of God's people come to salvation through him, get saved, it's a kid in a church, walk away from him, do all sorts of crazy things, find a bunch of punishment from it, physical, internal, whatever it is, have to bear the weight of some of that. And then think, God does not love me. There's no hope for me. There's no way out of my brokenness right now. How could he rescue me out of this? I mean, think of the Israelites right now. They are in the capital of the world power right now. Assyria was a terror on the earth. I mean, think of like Nazi Germany coming into Poland. There's nothing that they can do. They're sitting under, under these captors. They're, they've got this massive wall. They are protected. They have rivers around them. They're They're secure. How are we going to get out of this? We really screwed up. 
We followed after the other gods. We know we did that. We know God is a true God, but net, and, and we're, we're done for. And God says there is hope. There is rescue. There is life. You can trust me. I will save you. I am good. And I am a stronghold in your day of trouble. In fact, trouble is coming for those troublers. The ones who have led you astray, tempted you, destroyed you, caused you to suffer, all the thing around you, that is going to be coming to an end. And I will save my people. So after Nahum goes and he, and he speaks again of God's complete destruction of the wicked, he quotes Isaiah. He quotes a passage in Isaiah 52. It says this, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. This, this statement is hoping that the people would remember what Isaiah said to them 100 years back. That eventually God's going to return Eventually, he's going to rescue his people. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me over to Isaiah 52. as he's saying this, this should awake in them a memory of what Isaiah said. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what I have here declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, decries the Lord, declares the Lord. And continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name, and therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings new good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see. The Lord has given a commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off. The carved image and the metal image, I will make your grave. Oh, wait a minute. I'm reading the wrong passage. That happened. 
Return to the Lord <laughs> to Zion. Break forth together in singing your waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So Nahum, which I flipped over and started reading, um, was quoting that. And he's speaking comfort to God's people. Look, the feet of the one who brings and publishes good news is on upon the mountains. He's there. He's coming. He's speaking. The peace, the good news is that God is about to rescue you out of your captors. Out of the one who has destroyed you. Who is oppressing you. Who has enslaved you. The Lord is going to redeem you. The Lord has not forgot you. He is coming back for you. See, Isaiah prophesied something. Nahum saw it fulfilled. Isaiah prophesied something. Nahum saw it fulfilled in part. Because if any of you who've been reading the Bible for a while know this is not the only place that this passage is repeated in the Bible. Paul picks this same phrase up in Romans chapter 10. You could turn to Romans chapter 10 if you'd like. I'm going to. In Romans chapter 10, is Paul is speaking about salvation that is from faith. He's wrapping up a discussion on how Israel is um, blinded to the truth because they're hyper-focused on trying to fulfill the law with their own works and not receiving it by faith. And then he, he says, but the righteousness that's based on faith, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How are then, how then they will, will they call on him who have they not believed? And how are they to believe in him who have they not, never heard? How are they here without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. So Nahum ties Isaiah's prophecy to good news of salvation out of the bondage of Assyrians. Paul says, yes, but the real good news is the salvation out of the bondage of sin. Nahum is speaking to God's people who are cast away, brought out of the land, brought out of, out of the land of promise, in exile, under oppression, and God is about to break the yoke of their oppressors. Paul says, yes, that's true, but that spoke to a greater reality. 
that there is a greater oppressor who's oppressing all of us. He's violent, he's wicked, he's destructive, and no one can stand beside, behind him, beside him. Sin. Destruction of sin. Your captor. And there is one coming who can break the bonds of sin over your life. There is one who has come who has already done it. And behold how beautiful are the feet of those who publish the good news. My captor has no more power over me. My God is coming to rescue me. My Savior will break apart the bonds of sin over my life and redeem me. And all of the brokenness in this world, all of the stuff that's going on, everything that's out there, broken relationships, cancer, mental illness, drug addiction, will be broken. Salvation is there. It's ready and willing for you to receive it. It's for you to have. You just simply need to believe, receive, confess Jesus. See, God did this for the Assyrians. But that prophecy was not just for the Assyrians. In many ways, in a lot of places, we could spend a whole sermon on how God gives prophecies and he shows a near fulfillment and then he has an actual full fulfillment. And that full fulfillment is found in Jesus. And just like the Israelites are sitting under the oppression of the Ninevites and there does not seem like there's any way out, safety is already theirs. Rescue is already theirs. Freedom is already theirs, even though they are in captive. Jesus has already given us freedom. He's given us rescue. We just, we've been broken the bondage of sin over us. And although the temptation is there, failures are still there, mistakes are still there, corruption is still there, God will ultimately fully redeem us. So we get back to Nahum, and Nahum is speaking this, this promise, this peace that is only found in trusting the one who judges justly, only found in, re in rescue in God. Faith in him, trust in him. And he says this, keep your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows. Never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. What Nahum is saying is that those who have found their peace in God diligently serve him until he ultimately rescues him. 
Those who have found their peace in God diligently serve him until they find their ultimate rescue in him. What does that mean? Well, that means that for most of us, or actually all of us, this tidy, um, I don't know how to explain this, this, this bow that we tie up, right? Many people, preachers out there, we, we hear uh, testimonies of people who have God's redeemed, you know, like the drug dealer who was, you know, in jail seven times, done all this crazy stuff, and he's now this pastor and doing all these amazing things. And we think, oh man, what an awesome story. God fixed it all. And what we don't see is all the daily struggle that that person still has in their walk with the Lord. And we're tempted to think that, oh, if we haven't been fully fixed like that addict who no longer is an addict anymore and the Lord did this a miracle in his life, but I now still, I still struggle with, with complaining and ingratitude. Maybe I've missed it. Maybe God doesn't love me like he loves that person. Maybe God's not powerful enough to break my bond of greed or lust or anger or whatever it is. When the reality is that we're not fully yet redeemed all the way. God is still coming. And like he says to Nahum or through Nahum to Israel, although you are away in exile and your captors are alive and around you and doing the things that they, you don't want to do, abusing you. Don't stop serving the Lord. Keep your feasts, Israel. Fulfill your vows. In the time of your exile, when you're struggling against sin, keep your trust, keep pursuing, keep depending, keep seeking the Lord. The victory is won. The battle is not over. Don't give up. As sure as Isaiah prophesied it, it is happening now. It is done. So rest in the one who's coming, who's able to make the mountains shake, to dry up the rivers, to make the strong man become weak. So exactly the same thing that Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves therefore in the same way of thinking. Whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin and is to live for the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Sound familiar? With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, 
that, fl- the, that though judged in the flesh the way, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keeping love, keep, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's various grace, whoever speaks is the one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Keep your feasts, O Jerusalem. Fulfill your vows. In your time of exile, serve your Lord. Christians, love your neighbor. Trust your Lord. Reject complacency and apathy. Be sober-minded. Realize what's going on around us. Don't put all your hope and your pleasure in the things of this world. They're passing away. Peter, first century, the end of all things is at hand. We're 2,000 years past that. We're evidently a lot closer to the end of all things. And even at that time, He's saying sober-mindedness means that you don't continue going after the very thing that the Lord has rescued you from. You battle, you fight, you pray that the Lord would continue to do the work that he's done in you. You trust him. You seek him. You realize you don't have to have it all together. You don't have to have it perfect, but you do need to walk forward in trusting him. You can say no to sin. You can repent. You can find forgiveness and freedom. You can live for the glory of God here. And what does that look like? Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. Found within the community. Serving one another. Using our gifts. Trusting God. Encouraging one another. Uplifting one another. Reminding one another, this is not over yet. Don't give up. He's coming. Don't give up. He's coming. Trust your God. Rest in him. Find your peace in him. Because there's nothing that can stand against him. You are secure. You are loved. You are cared for because Jesus has paid every ounce that you owe. So are we sober-minded? 
question I want to leave with you. Am I sober-minded? Do I wake up with the realization that today is a gift from the Lord called for me to steward what he's given to me for his name and his glory? Or do I wake up and go, man, I just need another cup of coffee. I got to get through these tasks. I got to do these things. I, I caught up in my whatever obsession it is. Or do I recognize, although I'm struggling, I have not missed it. Although things are going on, I'm not yet done with the work that I've had. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned The Hobbit. Still reading through it, so I got another, another example. But into this book, there's a really interesting thing that happens. There's this, the, the, the dwarves, they, they get all their stuff. The dragon leaves the mountain. They have all their, their hordes of, of money and gold and valuables. Uh, this town of men Actually, a guy actually killed the dragon and now, but their town was destroyed behind it and they just coming up to the doors to get some relief. Give us some of your money so we can rebuild what we've done. And the dwarves are super greedy and they don't want to give up anything. And there's this one gem that the, dwarf, that, that the king dwarf won, the Arkenstone, the heart of the mountain. It's the only unique thing and that's the only thing that he cares about. And Bilbo Baggins had found it and he hid it. And he leaves at night and he goes to the other camp and he says, look, this is the most valuable thing in that entire mountain. I have it. I could claim it, part of my share. I want to give it to you as a bargaining chip. I want you to use it so that you can bargain back with Thorin to get, to get some of the stuff to rebuild and bring peace here. He betrays his friends because he wants to bring peace to the place. And at the end of this chapter, there's this interesting thing that happens uh, this, the messianic figure of, of Gandalf shows up in the book again. And he stands up and he says, well done, Mr. Baggins. Um, never surprised. Uh, there's always something more about you than anyone expects. And so Bilbo's delighted by that. And he wants to ask him, but he's kind of in a hurry. And he, and he says something, and then Gandalf says something back to him. He says, things are drawing towards the end now, unless I'm mistaken. There is an unpleasant time in front of you. But keep your heart up. You may come through it all right. There's news that the, even the ravens have not heard yet. Good night. There is an unpleasant time in front of you, Bilbo. But keep your heart up. You're going to come out all right. And I read that, and I just like, man, what a great picture of our Christian life. There may be an unpleasant time in front of us. Keep your heart up. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. God's not finished. God will rescue God will keep his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you that you love us, that you care for us, you're committed to us. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness we have in you, the hope we have in you, the rescue we have in you. Lord, keep us with our eyes to see 
the reality of things that are going around us. Give us sober judgment, Lord. Keep in front of us the task that you've assigned. Trust you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name. Now, it's a